Hello, gang. It's time for a new episode of Both Laugh. We are up to episode 48, and we are going to be joined on this episode by Josh Caterer. You know him from the Smoking Popes. You might know him from Duval if you're into the early Asian Man Records catalog. Uh, you might know him from the Jackson Mud Band. Now you know him from the Smoking Popes. We had him on the show earlier this year to talk about his uh, solo album, which was a live album, which was recorded live at an empty club via a live stream uh, from the hideout in Chicago uh, at the record release show for that show. He recorded another live album. This one recorded at space in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, it's really great. He did a good job with the first live album. He did an even better job with the second one. His band is pretty solid. They have since played a few shows. Uh, there are tour dates down below in the description where you can see them in uh, Wisconsin and in Illinois coming up at the end of next week. There will probably be new dates uh, next year. There will probably be new music next year, but for now it's Josh Caterer Trio. It's mostly uh, covers and reinterpretations of some classic songs, some of them popes, some of them not, uh, including my wedding song, my wife and I's wedding song, um, At Last, which you know by Edda James. Uh, you might know from Beyonce, but probably from Edda James because she's the gold standard. Anyway, it's episode 48. It's going to be right after the intro music from another Chicago band, Kali Masi. Catch you on the other side. Right. The fading out of the intro music means that it is time for another episode of Both Laugh, the Dying Scene Quarantine Chat Show. We are up to episode 48 for some reason. Uh, and if you're a regular listener, I can assure you that this is not a repeat episode uh, of episode, I think it was 30. We are uh, lucky enough to be graced by one of my favorite voices and my favorite guitar players in the whole punk rock milieu. And that is uh, Mr. Josh Caterer. Thanks again for for coming back on the show. I think you're our maybe second repeat guest. Oh, well, that's quite an honor. I'm happy to be on your program. I enjoyed our last conversation. So thanks for having me back. Yeah, I, I never know if people mean it when they say that, but I guess this is proof. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember telling you that uh, we were going to be releasing another album in the not too distant future and we should do this again. And I don't know if you believed me, but here we are it's happening right well thank you for doing it and yeah we uh i do remember you talking about that there was going to be another live album so to sort of frame this uh project the josh caterer trio is sort of what we're talking about although it dawned on me that there was a thing that i wanted to talk to you about last time that i didn't get to because we went over an hour and got to talking about guitars and I felt like I was getting a little nerdy at that point. And so maybe we, <laughs> but uh, I do, there was a thing that popped up last time that I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. And that was that this still being 2021, we sort of bookended this year, but this is the 30th anniversary of smoking popes starting. And I don't feel like that got enough attention, but I feel like that's a monumental uh, thing. 30 years is a long time. I know there's been, uh 
busier periods and less busy periods and hiatuses and whatever, but 30 yeah. years since the starting of the Smoking Popes is pretty awesome. So congratulations on that for what that's worth. Thank you. Yeah, it is the kind of milestone that a band, you know, a normal band would make into some kind of an event that they actually acknowledged. Um, <laughs> but we've never been good at that sort of thing. I mean, we, we did pull together like a, a 20th anniversary reissue of, of Destination Failure, but which we were really proud of ourselves because we usually miss all the big milestones of the band and don't sort of maximize our opportunities. And the only thing that we did to acknowledge our 30th anniversary is that um, during the couple of shows that we had this year, I just mentioned it from the stage, but we didn't do any sort of like special, you know, 30th anniversary tour. The band isn't <clears throat> touring. Right. Um, so we don't do that. I, I think that, um, uh, you know, that that's one of the great things, at least for me about doing this other project with the, with my solo band um, is that it, allows me to be a little more active than the, than the guys in the Popes are willing or able to be at this point because of other commitments. Um, some of which are really good. My, uh, both of my brothers uh, this year became fathers for the first time. That's amazing. I knew Eli was, I didn't realize Matt was too. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, Eli's son is I think five months old now. And then Matt's daughter is only a few weeks old. Oh, wow. And so they're both in the, the parenthood bubble and just kind of loving it. It's really delightful to see how much they're enjoying <laughs> this phase of their lives. And it's been a delight to meet my new little uh, nephew and niece. And, uh, but, you know, because of that um and i guess for a handful of other things but I, I would say that's probably pretty high on the list why the popes aren't particularly active at this point i mean you know we're still a band but we're we're only you know we're only doing if a if, if a show opportunity comes along that seems particularly intriguing yeah yeah not actively booking things makes sense but whereas you know with my with my solo stuff you know with records coming out we're like being a little more proactive about it and well well happy 30th uh regardless i, I like i i feel like i mean growing up i feel like 30th anniversary tours and things were were i mean that was that was the stratosphere of bands it was the who and uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, things like like bands weren't around for 30 years to that extent. I think for a lot of the music that I grew up listening to anyway, bands fizzled out well before they got to that stage. So to have and it's not just the Popes. There's a lot of those early 90s punk rock bands that that I essentially cut my teeth listening to that hit 30 years 
this year. 91 was, was, I guess, a good year for a lot of people, but I think face-to-face just hit 30 years this year and the Bouncing Souls hit 30 years a couple of years ago. So it seems like that's becoming more of a thing, maybe yeah. because people don't have to be on the road doing it. So you can pick your spots and do other things too, but maybe that helps with the longevity a little bit. Or it, it seems maybe kind of surprising to us that, you know, punk bands would be right. celebrating the 30th anniversary because, I mean, because we're, we're old enough to remember, you know, when punk music started out and we also are living at a time on the planet Earth when, like, you know, we experienced the, the first generation of, you know, that as a musical style. And so you know, future generations will be very familiar with bands of various genres who are doing their 30th, 40th, and 50th anniversaries. (laughs) You know, I think the the Rolling Stones themselves are surprised that they're still going. Still going. Yeah, I, um, there was a documentary, God, it's probably got to be, it came out when I was sort of a new dad and my daughter will be 14 in a month, which is horrifying in a few levels. But uh, there's a documentary called The Other F Word that I think it was Jim Lindbergh from Pennywise was involved with putting it together. And the other F word in this case being fatherhood. So it was essentially about those rebellious punk rock guys who grew up to be dads. So there were people from adolescence and Black Flag and the list goes on and on and on. But uh, there's a quote from Brett Gurowitz, who I don't know if he had kids at the time, but he was talking about how punk wasn't meant to be to get old and gray, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> like, I kind of identified with that. All those bands were supposed to self-destruct right. along the way at some point. Right. You know? And then there's this interesting thing about that you grow up, you, you make your living against authority, but then at some point you become the authority and you go from saying F the system to telling your kid they have to look both ways when they cross the street on their bike <laughs> like, right. and how to balance that when they tell you to go kick rocks. Yeah. Yep. Ah, uh, the circle of life. <laughs> right. Um, so let's talk about the space sessions because it is an interesting segue and I didn't even plan it that way, but you've got your daughter on a track on uh, the space sessions. But so let's talk about the space sessions because um, that's the new album. And yes. as memory serves, it was recorded essentially around the time of the record release of the last album. Right, because the record release for the Hideout Sessions happened, you know, during the time when everything was still basically locked down. Um, so, you know, if if we wanted to have like a a record release show in conjunction with the release of that album, it it had to be a virtual show. And so it seemed like an opportunity. So, well, if we're going to play another virtual show, why don't we record that as well and turn it into another album? And I also knew that, um, you know, at some point during the course of this year, things would begin to open up again, which would be great, which is something that, you know, we're all all artists are, have been looking forward to, um, but that there was something about the unique set of, of circumstances of clubs being closed 
that afforded us uh, the chance to to record this way and to do these kind of themed al albums that are um, that are sort of dependent on empty clubs being used as uh, you know ad hoc recording studios, and I, I wanted to see if we could squeeze at least one more album out of that set of circumstances, which is what this was. But you you uh, hit a home run with this. But I liked the hideout sessions a lot, as we talked about at the very early part of this year. And uh, this, I like the space sessions a lot more. <laughs> and, and I don't know where that comes from. I don't. So how much time did you guys have to play together as a trio amongst yourselves uh, before recording the space sessions? Like how much practice time. I want to say uh, as memory serves, it was like seven weeks or something like that before the hideout sessions, but it seems like this time you had a little more time to, to work. Yeah. We, we, we had a little more time, although I don't think we, uh, it, we did, it, it's not like we spent months practicing for it. I think it still was maybe a couple months that we were developing the material specifically for that collection of songs and, and practicing for it. I think one thing that um, gives this um, album kind of a, a leg up is that we didn't, um, we didn't do the virtual show uh, tr at truly as a live stream. We pre-recorded it um, and, edited the thing and then um it was streamed i think uh i'm not sure how much later uh week a week or 10 days mm -hmm. later um so everything on the album it it still is you're getting um you know live uh, single take single takes of live performances with nothing overdubbed but uh, we were able to do multiple takes of the songs and pick the best take. So each take that you're hearing is probably, I don't think we did more than three takes of anything, but some of the, some of what you're hearing on the album is like the second or third take of the song. So we kind of had um, a little more of a chance to get into the groove and sort of tighten things up on the day of the recording. Um, and it was, that helps not only the performances that wind up on the album, but that helped the, the video aspect of things a lot because it, it gave us a chance to, um, to take the audio files into the studio and have them mixed by Andy Gerber, who you know is our guy who's mixing the album, so that what you were hearing at the live stream, if you watch the live stream, you were hearing studio mixes, whereas the hideout one was, there was kind of an on the fly uh, video mix that was done in the room and that just just went out immediately. So this was a little more, a little more polished. It also gave us the opportunity to edit the video um, instead of doing that on the, on the fly. Everything that you saw when we did the the hideout sessions where there were just cameras set up in the room and there was um, one person controlling all of that who kind of just would switch from one camera shot to another. But in this case, 
for the space sessions, um, my friend, Brian Bouchelt, I asked him to come and sort of put together a team of people to do this. And he had, um, he had like a couple of cameras that were handheld, you know, with people kind of moving around. Um, so there's a lot more kind of movement and we did more with the lights and it just, it ended up being visually, I think more satisfying and interesting to watch than the, the space session. I mean, than the highlight sessions was. Um, so it was really, it was really a fun project. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of moving parts to it, but um, like we were, we were nervous. We were more nervous doing the hideout sessions because we really had not played together before as a band. And Which we, still is wild to me. Yeah. And, uh, and we knew that it was going out to so any mistakes that we made were going to be visible to the viewing audience. So this gave us a little more of a, of a cushion. Um, and we kind of just, um, could take a breath and enjoy it a little more and just, uh, you know, if we would play the song and we would be like, you know, that, that felt okay, but I think let's do it once more and we can just, we're almost there, you know? In, in some ways, it seems like that's a little closer to recording an, I don't want to say an actual live album because it is a live album, but the way that a band will record a live album traditionally is uh, maybe over a couple of nights, you record a bunch of performances and then whittle them down into yes. into this is the product, which it's still a live album. But like you said, it's the best takes from each song each night. Or maybe you right. flubbed how many, something. How many live albums? I don't know if you're uh, if you're kind of a historian about this sort of thing. But like, do you know of live albums that that you happen to know that that truly is a single show? that was recorded and just it's one night, one place. If we're, if we're subtracting Pearl Jam from the equation, because I am, I am like a died in the wool Pearl Jam fans and, and they, they released their, there were a few tours where they released individual shows as live albums, but, but they record, they released like 76 live albums at a time because they did every show from a given tour or whatever. If we're subtracting Pearl Jam from the equation, the only album that I have in my collection that is a live album that was recorded essentially in one take is the Hideout Sessions. So, oh wow! <laughs> I don't, I don't know, I, I don't always listen to live albums. There's some that, uh, especially in the record collection, I don't really like listening to vinyl live albums necessarily. Yeah, because I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't sit with them the same way as I do if I have them on my headphones, but. Uh, yeah, I think that the Hideout Sessions is definitely the only album that I know is is a one and done live album. Yeah. Um, why is that? That I like. I think that's kind of a universal thing that people kind of appreciate the idea of a live album, but in reality, you don't gravitate towards listening to live albums as much as you do studio albums i think for me because of the energy level in a live album and i don't want to have to get up and flip the record over like i like listening to a live album digitally there there are a few live albums out there that 
I have listened to for hours and hours and hours and hours on end on loop, but digitally, because it seems more cohesive that way rather than like, especially if there's in between song banter, or yeah. you can sort of tell that even if it wasn't from the same show or the same two songs in a row, like they paid attention to how they mixed the crowd in it. And so there's a little bit, you lose some of the energy when after four or five songs, you have to get up and flip it over and then start it again. I like that on a traditional album, but not necessarily on a live album. Yeah. I guess, you know, that thing about the between song banter, now that I'm thinking of it, is a factor because, um, like, for example, uh, Frank Sinatra albums get a lot of play in, in our house. Yeah. And I've got, I sort of, I sort of collect them. <laughs> I have a lot of his albums. Yeah. Vinyl. Um, and I, I love, uh, I love Sinatra at the stands, but like I almost never put that one on and listen to it because a lot of the situations that, you know, we're listening to Frank Sinatra in are like, you know, we're having people over and he makes great background music or, you know, we're cooking dinner and, you know, there's, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's sort of part of an environment. And I know that if I put on Sinatra at the Sands, there's those weird parts where he's like sort of doing stand-up comedy in between. Right, right. And like, you just don't want to have to listen to that, you know, when you're eating dinner or whatever. <laughs> Or if you're so, entertaining company, yeah, and you there might company, be a thing that's you know. funny and you want to get people to listen to, but they don't care to listen to the guy talking. They're there and it's it's like a fish tank. It's in the background. Right. Yeah, you just want music. Right. Um and I feel like the the crowd noise, the audience uh, applause and cheers in between is like, I don't know, it's cool. It's cool until it isn't. Like after a few songs, like that sound just isn't that pleasant to to, mm. to to hear as the connecting tissue between each of the songs so yeah that is why my solo albums are <laughs> the best of both worlds right you have you have the energy and and the the, the sort of a spirit of a live performance without all that annoying applause <laughs> I, I will say, and I think I said this uh, when we talked last time about the hideout sessions, is that you you get used to when listening to a live album to understanding sort of what it's going to sound like, even if you've never heard it before, but you know that there's going to be crowd noise. And so uh, it's an interesting dynamic to have a song come to a big crescendo at the end and then knowing it's a live album and then just have it be crickets in the background. And then the next song comes along. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I think this is, uh, you know, part of the reason why, like, we didn't, we're, we're not really billing either of these as a live album. Like, we didn't yeah, include yeah. Uh, the word live in the title mm -hmm. of them. And that's why I, there is that awareness that, that, that almost limits the appeal of an album. And this, the, the, the liveness of these albums is something that, um, you know, music nerds can sort of focus in on um i guess technically 
there are, for example, like Neil Young albums that are that are live in the sense that he clearly went into the studio, yeah, just performed, and what you're hearing is a single take with no overdubs where everything's happening at once. Um, you know, uh, several of his albums sound like yeah, yeah, especially with Crazy Horse, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and, and you keep all of the uh, the things in the, the mistakes in there, especially with Crazy Horse. Uh, you keep all of those things in there, and that's what makes it a Neil Young album, right? So people, you just things are gonna know uh, that 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 is his approach, and and you're gonna you're gonna love the recordings for that reason. But um, you know, he's not stamping on their live in the studio yeah, yeah. right right it's just like here's the album you figure it out right yeah and you're right the music dorks like some of us will will appreciate it <laughs> yeah. um but there's also this this sort of because this is a group that formed during pandemic essentially and has since played live but by the time these two albums were recorded you hadn't played live in front of people at that point correct that is correct. Yeah. When was the first? Uh, what was the first show that you guys played as a band in front of people? And did that change how you how you played some of the songs? Did, are they different when you're playing in front of people and you see what people are reacting to? Yes. Um, that that has always been the case. Like I, I've noticed that since the earliest days of the Popes, is that we would write a song, work on our arrangement, be all excited, go into the studio, record it. But then once you take it out there and start playing it, um, your performance takes on these different qualities and you sort of change the way you do it. And I think some of that, as you mentioned, is in response to the, the way that an audience responds to the song. But um, it also just has to do with like, the more you play a song over and over, uh, the more the more you sort of feel uh, different directions that you can go with, the, like the way that you uh, enunciate a line. Something I'm going to do with the melody. Something you know, maybe the the tenth time that we played this in front of people, I did this one vocal thing at this one part of the song that was a, a spontaneous thing but like i was like oh that works i like that i'm gonna do yeah. that every time yeah. and you know it, it would be ideally you'd be able to play you know a song for six months in front of people and then record it i don't know if, how many bands do that the, the the disadvantage of doing that is that um a lot of your audience will already be familiar with the material before the album comes out, which might kind of um, take some of the appeal out of it <laughs> for them. Like yeah. we did, the Popes had that happen uh, back when we made the album um, Stay Down. There was, uh, there was just a delay. We, it took us, um, that was kind of our first, that was our first studio album after getting back together. And uh, we had released the reunion album, the live album that came out on uh, Victory Records, but 
that relationship with them ended poorly. And so we were looking for another label and the process of just like talking to a different label and finding the right home for our next studio album, like it took, ended up taking a couple years for us to get that all figured out. Meanwhile, we're writing these songs and introducing them into our live set because we didn't realize it was going to take a couple years for right. this. You froze up there for a second. Our live set for, uh, you know, for a couple of years. And we felt like we were, we were kind of sick of the, like the, all the newness had come off of them. And we felt like our fans, you know, if anybody had been to more than one show that they had heard these songs already, like, and that's not, that's not ideal. Well, and I think now with social media and YouTube, especially that, half of every show that you go you, that you go to ends up on the internet now. And so it's probably tougher for bands to work through new material. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. because you don't even know if it's a good song yet, you're putting it out there, but then a thousand people have seen it on YouTube by the end of the week. All right. Because you say, you get up there and say, Hey, we want to play a new song for you. And everybody's like, yay. And then all these phones go up. Right. And you're like, well, Okay, I guess we're committing to this. <laughs> now we have to make that a song. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you're when you're arranging songs for the Josh Caterer Trio, when you're when you're picking songs to make mm -hmm. Josh Caterer Trio songs, because for those that don't know, especially the the Hideout Sessions was a mix of Pope songs and some uh, sort of old staples. My Funny Valentine was on there. Um, mm -hmm. Rags to Riches is on there. So there's some old standards that you probably heard Sammy Davis Jr. or or uh, Frank Sinatra saying for the space sessions. There's there's some deep Pope's cuts. There's a Duval song on there which caught me sort of off guard, and it took me a second to remember that I knew that song. I, said, well, I haven't heard this in 20 years, however long it's been. Um, you yeah, and there and there's uh, and then so there's a bunch of there's an Elvis song, there's an At King Cole song, there's uh, At Last by Etta James, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. Um, but when you're when you're putting songs together to be Josh Cater or trio songs, is it different than say when you're putting a Pope song together because you are a power trio now and you don't have say Eli there next to you playing guitar as well? So does that sort of shape how you're going to even pick songs to know what you can do as a three piece versus as a four piece versus if you had horns or a bigger band? Or... Um, I don't think that the difference between three piece and four piece has come into play with song choice. The, the song choices are uh, determined almost completely by um, how how well I'm going to be able to deliver the song vocally and how much I connect with it as a as a singer. So I'm I'm just like listening to songs, going through you know lists of my favorite songs that I've always wanted to do, um, and and trying them and and trying to determine whether it's going to work for me. There are songs that that I've always loved, but like if I try to sing them, um, I just can't connect with it for some reason. I can't, 
make it my own and, and sort of deliver it convincingly or comfortably. Um, so I'm looking for songs that are gonna, and sometimes it's like, I almost wouldn't be able to define for you what it is about a song that's gonna make it work for me. It's just something that I have to intuitively feel. Mm -hmm. Um, so there is a process of, you know, like, hey, let's try this and some of the songs that we do in, in rehearsal for both of these albums. There have been a couple of songs that we tried that just didn't make it onto the album. And I don't know if that it's a process of like taking a different approach to the arrangement or if it's just like that one just doesn't work for me. Uh, for example, uh, on this uh, for the space sessions. I had done a demo of uh, of the song "It's Not Unusual" by Tom Jones, which I just love. And uh, I don't know. We tried. We played it at a at a couple of the at a couple of the rehearsals early on, and it just wasn't working in reality as much as it was working in my head. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of feel it, and. Uh, I can almost hear it now. I can almost hear your, like, I feel like your voice would work well with that song, but that's got a different sort of swing to it than some of the other songs that end up uh, in your repertoire in these two albums. So I can see where that would be tricky. Yeah. And, and also the, once you start uh, determining song the album, once you have a few of those, like, okay, we're definitely doing, you know, these three, then that can sort of inform the other songs that you pick because the other songs have to kind of make sense in, in that set. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, that might've been part of it is that it's not unusual, just didn't seem to flow with the kind of vibe. Uh, there is something kind of very uh, upbeat and I don't mean rhythmically, but like just the, the kind of where the, the ethos of the song is very upbeat. Um, more, more so than it seemed would fit with anything else. Yeah, world. that makes sense. So. Um, well, I mentioned that I was going to talk to you about uh, At Last, which has been one of my favorite songs for many, many years. And not just because uh, it's my wedding song, but curiously enough, uh, the so back i've been married we just had our 18th anniversary back in september when we were trying to pick wedding songs we almost went with the sinatra song and that was zing went the strings of my heart which obviously wasn't by uh sinatra initially but his version of it uh, which obviously the popes did years and years and years ago and then so now at last ends up on the josh caterer trio album and that is the song that we chose as our wedding song so like we were down to two and now you've done both of them <laughs> nice nice oh yeah there is something stunning about um especially about the Etta james version of at last but there is um kind of a simple beauty to the melody. The song is not overwritten. It's pretty straightforward. Um, so that's one of those, one of those songs that does a lot with a little, like mm -hmm. that's, that's really good songwriting. If the, 
if the elements of it are kind of sparse, but they pack a lot of punch into, you know, a line that only has like five syllables in it, but yeah, right. uh, Hits you. Um, I love that kind of songwriting and I've always loved, uh, you know, I kind of sing, you know, have, have sang along with that song, but knew going into this, that it would be a mistake for us to try to do it the way Etta James did. Yeah, that makes sense. Because her version of it is like iconic. Like she, <laughs> right. she owns it. Mm-hmm. And the only way that you can, you know, borrow it is um, if you don't, if you don't try to like step into her shoes. You know, yeah, yeah, right. That's a losing proposition. If you try to sing that song with the same arrangement and the same tempo and like hitting the same notes that she did, you're going to lose. So you just have to. Which is sort of what Beyonce did with that song, which I mean, Beyonce's version is fine. And if that's the only version, you know, it's very good. But she did the Etta James. She sort of did the Etta James version of the song and she put herself she may have even played at a James in a TV movie or something like that. If memory yeah, serves. Didn't, didn't, she, didn't she do that for a movie? It was, uh, she, she portrayed yeah. in a movie. I think that one with Adrian, uh, Adrian Brody. And it was all about the, that record label. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Um, Cadillac records. Okay. Movie, I think. So I think she kind of had to do it like at a James for use in the film. Well, but then like, I know Obama had her do it at the inauguration or, or at his birthday party or something like that. And I know that Etta James got all bent out of shape about it because like, A, you didn't call me to do it, but B, because like somebody else doing my, that version, my version of that song, it was a whole, it was a whole thing. Uh, yeah. But I've only really other heard one other person uh, sort of, um, contemporarily do that song i mean other than the beyonce version and now yours but uh about a year or so ago for my wife's birthday a lot of musicians during quarantine while they were struggling to figure out what to do would commission song requests and so Corey brandon has been one of my favorite singers and songwriters for a long time and so i had him do his spin on it and he did he did a completely different version of it altogether it's sort of the 60s smoky Thing to, he did a really cool version of it. So now I like that I have, we have the Etta James version and the Corey Brandon version and the Josh Caterer version. And they're all like awesome in their own unique ways. Oh, cool. Well, I'm glad you like it. It was really, it was fun to do, especially once we got those horns in there. Yeah. I felt like that really took it to a whole different level um, and was really happy with, I mean, the, the, we as a trio came up with an arrangement that we felt good about and then contacted Max who had played Max Crawford, who had played with us on the hideout sessions on a couple of songs about adding something to it. And then he was the guy that suggested that he would recruit a couple of other horn players and make it like a, like a three horn part. Yeah. yeah. And once, and, and he wrote, uh, you know, an arrangement for his horn part for their, uh, for the horn section. And when they came in and did it, uh, 
we just almost just jumped for joy because it just it it, it brought this kind of inspired quality to the whole song. I, I think the way that song ended up, especially because of that horn part and everything, um, it's it's probably my favorite track on the album. And it might be for me, sort of the high point of both of these albums. Um, I keep humming that the, the horn melody gets stuck in my head for days at a time. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what, one of the things that I appreciate about the way that you approach cover songs, especially, is is your appreciation for them. Uh, I think we're all we've all seen and sometimes enjoyed the trope of of, of punk bands doing covers of non traditional punk rock songs and making them their own, and that's good and that's fine. But a lot of times, it's done with more than a little bit of tongue in cheek. Or, yeah. or, or sarcasm involved. And there, there's an appreciation that obviously you have for the songs and doing them in this sort of updated way that I really, I really enjoy because you, you do actually take it seriously. Yes. And I know, <laughs> which I isn't know, a question as much as a statement, but, <laughs> but I, I, I know what you're talking about. I've seen, I've seen and heard uh, many a punk band cover a song where it it seems like uh the novelty of the song is supposed to be isn't it funny that a punk band would be doing this song mm -hmm. and and isn't it funny that um a song that you'd normally would think of as a uh, a pop song or a song from di a different genre it's now done with uh power chords and a sneering vocal but like that the, that joke uh isn't funny for very long i mean right. you have to <laughs> you have to that doesn't make for a song that you're going to listen to more than once you know you have to be bringing something to the table i i i just am have always been a huge fan of like the art of interpretation and this genre that we're picking from you know songs that that um etta james was doing and uh frank sinatra and uh you know nat king cole and sammy davis jr and elvis elvis like some of the songs that all that, that they were doing uh were songs that they didn't write and they weren't the only ones to record and release versions of that song you know because that's before the era where the singer songwriter became uh the main thing and and bands would you know be writing and arranging all of their own original songs um so there wasn't back then there wasn't even i don't think the term cover band or cover artist or this right. is a, a album of covers like that didn't exist because there wasn't this distinction or this expectation that every album that the band put out would consist of material that they wrote specifically for that album. There was uh, an appreciation of the validity of taking a song that existed in the world and inhabiting that song in your own way and expressing it through the prism of your own voice, bringing out different nuances and, uh, 
you know, sort of uh, throwing your hat in the ring with with other artists and saying uh, like it's it's like it's not a competition, but hey, you know, my, my my way of interpreting this song is valid as well to be considered uh, alongside these others. And like, I just always loved that. Um, and there, you know, as a fan of, of both Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland, there are a bunch of songs where I think the, the versions that, the, that they've done, I, I think in a lot of cases, Judy would do them first and then Frank would reinterpret them, you know, a year or two later. Mm. And Frank being, you know, one of the greatest vocalists who ever lived, any, every time he sang a song, um, it, it felt like it originated with him. Yeah, 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 right. But, um, but Judy had that same quality, you know, like Zing went the strings of my heart. Um, I think that was, that was a Judy song until Frank came along and said, okay, well, it's not only yours. <laughs> right. Yeah, like I said, I know it as a, as a Frank Sinatra song. And yeah. I think because I didn't grow up on, I didn't grow up on Judy Garland or Nat King Cole or Frank Sinatra. So I grew up on the music of the sixties and seventies that was written by the bands that performed it. So I sort of didn't have an appreciation for that until much more recently really until until getting to learn older music and really getting to learn Elvis's catalog and I'm not a huge Elvis fan uh but I find him a very intriguing character but I think so the Elvis song that you picked for this which again not an Elvis song but if you've heard an Elvis Presley if you've heard Elvis Presley sing a song <clears throat> he didn't write it right and that's sort of a phenomenon that it didn't really occur to me until much more recently in my music listening experience but even the song that you picked on this the if i can dream is a song that sort of changed the way that elvis did songs going forward yeah it, it moved him so much for those that don't know the story it was written sort of inspired by uh martin luther king's assassination and so it's sort of the songwriter's interpretation of the I Have a Dream speech. Um, and it so moved Elvis that it changed to him what was important about uh, the music that he played and the movies that he made. And so it changed the way that he was going to perform going forward and the kinds of, and he wasn't going to play songs anymore that or record songs anymore that didn't mean something to him personally. Whereas up till 68, because that was for the 68 comeback special. I know a lot about Elvis for a guy that I don't particularly care for. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm picking up on that. Yeah. Uh, Peter, Peter Garulnik wrote two fabulous books about Elvis that I don't, you don't have to be an Elvis fan to enjoy them. It's probably 2000 pages all put together between the two books, but they're phenomenal. Um, but, but from the time from 68 till he passed away, that's how he performed songs going forward is they had to mean something to him. And Colonel mm -hmm. Tom totally didn't understand it. And that's a whole other story. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, he also like that song was written specifically for Elvis. Yeah. Um, which in his later years, uh, especially after 68, once he uh, started performing on stage again regularly, uh, he would, just pick songs 
that were popular that he liked. Um, but up until then, he was doing a lot of material that was written specifically for him. Mm. Because, you know, people were tripping over themselves to try to get Elvis to yeah. record one of the songs. So he had songwriters that were just sending him stuff all the time. And so, um, I don't know. So it, it sort of raises philosophical questions about like, you know, because you, you said that's not an Elvis song. But if it was written specifically for Elvis to do at his 68 comeback special, yeah. and he was the one that introduced it to the world, like it's it's an Elvis song. Does he have to have written it in order for it to be an Elvis song? And we yeah. all know that At Last is an Etta James song. Right, right. And I think it's appropriate to say that it's an Etta James song. Oh, absolutely. But, but she didn't write it. Yeah, right. It existed before that. And she was, she was covering it. But... You know, her version is such utter perfection that it, now it's in a James song. <laughs> yeah, right. but the, so I, I appreciate you taking on a song like that because it must be daunting to have a song that is essentially perfect and say, okay, what can I do differently <laughs> about, like, how can I make that mine? It's where there's already a gold standard that they broke the mold after. Like, it's got to be an interesting... Uh, thing as a songwriter and arranger in, in, on your own to say, okay, how can I tackle that song and make it mine, even though it's already perfect? Right. Um, it is uh, challenging. And this this whole project of these albums that I've been making with this trio is kind of about uh, challenging ourselves um, I, I, I have wanted to put myself in a position where I'm uh, doing some things vocally that are uh, not just in my comfort zone. And there's a couple of those moments on both of the albums. You know, I was, I was worried, I don't know, worried might be overstating it, but... Um, I was a little nervous about what kind of fool am I on uh, the hideout sessions because there's that kind of crescendo at the end where it builds up and then the music drops out and there's that exposed. Yeah. 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 And we're doing the song in the same key that Sammy Davis Jr. did. So I know that I am attempting to hit the same note that he so beautifully and perfectly hit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was a little nervous about that, but I just decided, you know, that's that's what life is: is you should be challenging yourself. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I don't want to, you know, be a person who backs away from things uh, because they make me nervous. I want to be trying that stuff. And um, at last was an example on this on this album um of doing that of finding a way finding a way to do it that that felt like it could be our version and a way that i could approach that vocally and like i i don't think i don't think that i'm as good a singer as sammy davis jr but i felt like when i approached that song, What Kind of Fool Am I? I didn't have to differentiate it as far as um, 
I, I, I didn't, I, I felt like just the fact that we were playing it as a power trio instead of the kind of orchestrated arrangement uh, was enough of a difference where then I could approach it vocally almost like I was, I was just paying homage to the way mm -hmm. he sang it as much as I could. And his um, sort of the timber of his voice isn't, uh, isn't as different from mine as mine is from Etta James. So it like almost would feel silly for my, for me to try to sing an Etta James song the way she sang it because yeah, her, right, right. her voice is like, I just can't do that. Um, <laughs> So it was uh, it was fun to try this. The, the other one that was the most challenging uh, was Smile, the uh, Charlie Chaplin song, um, because I don't know there was just something about the the chord pattern and the melody. It was a little more complex. There's just sort of this up and down movement um, to the way the melody and chords interact with each other that uh, is harder to play. Like that, that's a song that we, you really have to concentrate on mm. to be able to play it and sing it. Um, Do you think that's because the lyrics to that song were added afterwards? Cause it was written essentially as an instrumental. And then it was years later, I think that the actual, lyrics to it got added on so i wonder if there's i wonder if sort of the balance there is a little different that could be i do i do think that that is an interesting fact about that song about the, the lyrics being written years afterwards yeah, yeah. By, by different people um which almost makes it sort of a sort of traditional folk songy in the way not that it's a traditional folk song i'm not trying to imply that but the way that folk songs would sort of change narratives and and to keep the melody but add different verses and add different lyrics over the years and sort of it becomes uh, a sort of growing thing i feel like that's the sort of big band standard version of that yeah i think you're probably right about that um just start a big band show podcast. <laughs> yeah. We should. Yeah. We could what? talk about this stuff all day. This is one of those things where like, you know, you were saying earlier that um, you're not sure if people, <laughs> you're not sure how many people are yeah, yeah. in the stuff that you geek out about. And I feel like these records that I'm making now are like, uh, uh, musical examples of that same question like okay i'm going to uh i'm going to play this music and i'm going to i'm going to do these songs because because i love these songs but i'm not sure if anybody else is really going to be interested in hearing them i think that because uh i think there's a lot of people that are or that will be but i think that there's also a thing that happens among uh the punk rock set, and I count myself uh, at least tangentially among them, but certainly my upbringing was such that, like, I didn't know from uh, Frank Sinatra or Nat King Cole, other than that I think my grandmother on my mom's side listened to some of that music, but I, but she listened to 
a lot of old Irish music and stuff as well. And I knew that was my grandmother's music and that was kind of where I compartmentalized it. And then like once getting into my parents' music, but then getting into my own music, it sort of seemed like everything was, uh, like he developed this attitude where if it wasn't punk rock, then it didn't count. Like I, I was too punk rock to listen to Nat King Cole. I was too punk rock to listen to Bruce Springsteen, which is a thing that came up on last episode of the show that I did. And it sounds nonsense now that like I'm in my forties and appreciate music, but, but there was a, a part of me that was closed off to a lot of music because that wasn't punk rock. You know what I mean? And so it's, it became, I think, easier for the guys that went the traditional sort of folk punk route eventually to get a little bit of traction that way. So guys that ended up doing Johnny Cash songs and growing beards and playing acoustic guitars and whatever, like that seemed a little more palatable to the punk rock kids. Whereas uh, that listening to your grandma's or your parents' old music, you sort of kind of have to realize that, okay, this is actually great music too. And it, it's like, it doesn't matter if it's not three bar chords in a, a Gibson Les Paul and a Marshall stack. Like it's really good music and just deal with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you, I sort of like the idea of uh, making music without thinking about genre it's supposed to be or what the boundaries of that are supposed to be or how it's going to be marketed. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of, that has crossed my mind <laughs> several <laughs> times in doing this project. I'm like, I know that, you know, this the Smoking Pope's, kind of fall into this genre of of pop punk and i've always felt like uh, a certain percentage of people have acknowledged that there are undercurrents in our music that uh are more connected to like you know irving berlin than they are connected to the ramones yeah, yeah right um but that isn't as that isn't as a parent. It's it like the, the the smoking popes have the benefit of being able to um, claim a specific genre, yeah, sort of function within that because there's there are like channels that the that the music can go through to make its way to people, whereas this is a little more confused as to like uh, you know, okay, so you're doing okay, so you're doing some like you're doing an Etta James song, but like, so is this R and B? Yeah, right. N no, right. Because we're also doing like uh, you know, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. songs. Uh, okay, so so is this big band crooner music? <laughs> no, right. right. Um. It's not punk, really. Right. There are, it's, I guess rock and roll would perhaps be the larger umbrella that it would fall under. Sure. But, but is it? I don't know. What would you call this music? I don't know. I gave up on labeling things a long time ago. Because honestly, like, 
and then you call the th- a thing the wrong thing. You call something post hardcore, and it was supposed to have been melodic hardcore. And then people yell at you, and I'm like, I don't care. Like whatever. Yeah. I don't know what version of not hardcore but sort of hardcore hot water music is supposed to be. I don't like. Don't yell at me because I picked the wrong describer uh, descriptor. So I gave up on labeling things a long time ago. But you're right. It doesn't sound like big band music. It doesn't sound like you would expect uh, a Bee Gees song to sound. It's not the sort of the sort of Dave Grohl Foo Fighters way of interpreting a Bee Gees song, which they just put out a whole album of Bee Gees covers. But they did them like as Bee Gees songs. And it's also okay. it's good, but it's also like weird. <laughs> uh, but it it is. It did is. They, I started a joke. What's that? Did they do I Started a Joke? They did. Uh, no, they didn't. And and truthfully, I haven't heard the whole thing because I, small doses with Foo Fighters. But um, but it, it doesn't sound it's I mean, I guess it's sort of smoking popes ish, but maybe that's because it's your voice and your guitar. And so it's always going to sound sort of smoking popes ish, but it's not smoking. Pope. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's awesome, though. <laughs> I like it a lot. And I listen to it while I'm making dinner in the kitchen. <laughs> OK. Um, you sort of have this idea that um, that years after I'm dead, there will be like a, a a generation of people who sort of discover this music and celebrate it, um, and I will reap no earthly benefits from it. <laughs> but I'm I'm. I'm sort of doing this for them. Right now, people are going to be confused by these albums. <laughs> but... well, I, I think if there are people that are Pope's fans, they'll certainly get it. I don't know from coming outside of it, but I think that if there are people that are Pope's fans, they will absolutely get it. Well, that's that's a good place to start, I guess. Yeah, right. Um, the other thing from this particular album, from the Space Sessions that I wanted to talk about is for the last song, speaking of Frank Sinatra, uh, you have something stupid on there and you covered it with your daughter. I apologize if I should know this, but has she sort of followed in the caterer family uh, musical path? Because uh, she's got a phenomenal voice and your voices work really well together. I mean, you can tell your father and daughter, but your uh, your voices work really well together. And that's a really sort of special song. Did it seem as special for you recording it? Yes, it did. And um, I didn't really realize how much our voices were in sync with each other until uh, last year uh, when when the COVID lockdown happened and she and I started doing these Facebook Live videos where we would play songs together. Now we've been singing together for years and years, just around the house. Like she is a singer. So, you know, she walks around singing and as do I, and we've been sort of informally harmonizing with each other around the house. And um, and then in more recent years, you know, she started singing with me in church, but like in a live setting like that, I wasn't able to to really, objectively listen to how our voices interact with each other. 
but and then we started doing these Facebook live videos and then watching them going back and watching them and I was like wow like the way that she enunciates things is just perfectly lined up with the way I do and uh you know there there might be something to this this blood harmony thing that people <laughs> talk yeah. about yeah you know so um when I started putting material together for the, the space sessions, I just knew that we, we had to do something together. And it just seemed like the, uh, the Frank and Nancy Sinatra duet would be perfect on a lot of levels. And it, it sort of was interesting once we started working on it because uh, my daughter Phoebe discovered that, that it, it is an interesting harmony that, that Nancy is doing. It's almost like monotone where she's holding one note and then Frank's voice, his, his melody is like ascending underneath it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she's just going, I know I stand in line until you think you have the time to spend an evening with me. You know, and so it, the, the way that those, the moving melody line and the stationary one sort of uh, interplay is, is very interesting. Like, you know, do it, like figuring out arrangements for different songs that already exist is, uh, it has a, a, an educational quality. You always pick up something um, that, that you, that wouldn't have existed in a song that you wrote. You know, mm -hmm. so you have to kind of expand your horizons. That is not a a harmony line that I would have ever come up with. Yeah, right. But now that we've made it part of our repertoire, now it's it, that becomes a tool that's in my toolbox, you know, for future use. So. Has she played that song with you live? Because I know you've played a few shows since things have started opening up. Has she played that live with you in front of folks? Yeah. She has. A couple Did, of times now, and it's great. Does she is she a trained singer as well? I, I know you mentioned she sings in church. Is she as does she have other vocal training? Has she gone to school for they or she just no, picked up that harmony naturally? She just got the the Josh Caterer immersion training. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. the, she got the training where like uh she'll she'll walk into the kitchen and I'll already be singing something. And she'll just hop in on the harmony. That's impressive. Yeah. That's impressive. And, or vice versa, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, well, I, you probably can't pick it up, but I, I hear her singing. Down oh, that's the funny. No, I can't. That's funny. Well played, Phoebe. <laughs> I'm trying to hear what song it is. I can't quite make it out. Yeah. Her voice. Oh, if she's in the house, she's usually singing and you can hear her. What does she say? How old is she? she she's, she's 16. Okay. She's a little older than my daughter. What is her sort of musical wheelhouse? Does she have an appreciation for either your music to the Pope's or the older music that you listen to as well? Or? Yeah, actually she has for a long time been a serious Elvis fan because we took her to Graceland when she was maybe four or five years old and she just sort of, uh, probably just thought he was cute, uh, <laughs> but then started listening to him yeah. at home and, and really started loving 
his music and like other kind of older music. Um, but she kind of likes, um, she, she, she doesn't, you know, listen to the, the harder stuff that I grew up on. She's not listening to any punk or hard rock stuff. It's more like she likes singers. Um, she's a big Dolly Parton fan. Okay. We respect Dolly in this house. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she'll listen to a lot of uh, female vocalists. She's a, recently got super into Brandy Carlisle. She's phenomenal. Yeah, she's phenomenal. Yeah. She's amazing. So, um, you know, the Secret Sisters. Are you familiar with them? By name, yeah. Yeah, they're they're a big hit uh, in this household, and you know that that kind of stuff. Um, I don't want to, I just realized we've gone well over an hour again. I don't want to take up too much of your evening. This is, uh, like I said, I always appreciate picking your brain and the opportunity to, you've got a few shows with Josh Caterer Trio coming up, uh, end of next week. Is that right? Yeah. Is this, when, when are people going to hear what we're doing right now? What is today? Today is Monday. This yeah, maybe tomorrow or Wednesday. So, okay. You got a pretty quick turnaround on this thing. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, low maintenance, really. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're playing in uh, in Evanston, a show at Space, at the uh, venue where we recorded the album, and it'll the the first record release show for the the Space Sessions. That's going to be December sixteenth. Then the seventeenth, we're playing at the Lyric Room in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And the 18th, we're playing the back room at Colectivo in Milwaukee. So just a little three-show mini tour. Um, and our friends in uh, the Sunshine Boys are going to be coming with us. I don't know if you're familiar with... Uh, I'm not. I should be, but I'm not. Dog Julin is the lead singer uh, from The Slugs, and he's in Poi Dog Pondering. And, oh, okay. Uh, this is a great great project they've got a couple of albums out sunshine boys just like well-crafted kind of jangly pop music that is very melodic and and just i'm a big fan so i'm, I'm happy to be playing with them are they chicago area yes okay That'll be that'll be fun. Are those the first. I know you've done a few Chicago area shows. Is that the first? Will that be the furthest you've gone outside of Illinois with this project? We played Summerfest in Milwaukee. Oh, okay. A few months ago, so that that was our first out of town gig, and then the day after that, we drove down to Nashville and played at a private event down there. Milwaukee to Nashville is <laughs> yeah that's a hike yeah <laughs> we got up early the next day and drove down and uh that was fun yeah but we've been as far as as Nashville so I guess I think I know I saw a Pope show this is probably four or five years ago now uh the Bouncing Souls big outdoor thing that they do at the Stone Pony and I I think you guys had been in like Grand Rapids, Michigan, the day before, or something like that, and I just yes, <laughs> like that wrapping my head around going from Grand Rapids to Asbury Park over to, and that playing was, a show. That was a situation where 
uh, like we did not get a room that night. I think we just, we drove through the night and took turns, you know, driving and quote unquote sleeping in the van. <laughs> <laughs> so we were running on fumes by the time we played that show, but like it was so fun and there were so many people there and it was such a cool venue that, you know, we took energy from that and that's what, that's what got us through. They put on a good show there at the Stone Pony. I mean, Asbury Park is a great place anyway, but they, they put on a great show there and they love their bouncing souls there. They do. And I, I, I know that um, Against Me was also on the bill. Yes. And uh, I had not seen them before and they were just fantastic. I They're really dynamite. Uh, was Tim Barry on that show too? Yes. I think. Yep. I get my years mixed up. We... We went down, I live in the Boston area, but uh, we try to go down to Asbury Park once every, uh, maybe once or twice a year, depending pre-COVID on uh, what's going on. But that, that's, a, that's a normal stop for us. But I think at the time that was the Bouncing Souls largest headlining show. And it was essentially their 30th anniversary. I think that was their biggest headlining show to date. Yeah. You know, I think the Pope's, we've got enough lead time. Maybe we could put together something good for the 40th anniversary. <laughs> I'll remind you. <laughs> On our 38th Exactly. Right. Uh, thanks for doing this. I'll put links to where people, I don't know if pre-orders are actually up for the space sessions yet. I don't know exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't recall having seen them, but I will certainly look, but I will put links to um that issue is a little confused because of the uncertainty about the vinyl i we already have the cds and uh it will be available for digital download and streaming and everything starting on december 17th but we're not exactly sure when the vinyl is going to show up it's probably going to take another couple of months um and i know we're not the only band in that situation yeah, uh, that whole world has ground to a halt. Yeah, it has. Because Adele needs 500,000 variants of... <laughs> Don't get me started on Adele. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just not... And I'm, I, I try to keep my opinions to myself about this also because my daughter's a big Adele fan. But uh, uh, even before this vinyl... Yeah, yeah. single-handedly ruined the vinyl production industry. Yeah. I already had some issues with Adele. Yeah, as did I. I I have long since come around on Taylor Swift, so I'm very much team Taylor, but uh, I I don't, yeah, I don't do the Adele thing. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm not ashamed to say that uh, 1989 is a great record, and I've listened to the song Shake It Off on repeat and staying along many times. But Adele, As have I without my daughter in the car. 